0: 75 years have gone past, and during those 75 years, the Christadelphian community has been expecting the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. For 175 years, the Christadelphian community has been ex- expecting the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet still, he hasn't come.
1: How long? This is the cry of the
0: prophets through the centuries. How long do we have to wait for the consummation of all things? And it hasn't happened, and we're rightly disappointed that it hasn't happened. But there is a real danger that disappointment becomes disillusionment. Disillusionment leads to loss of faith. And even if it doesn't lead to an overt loss of faith, it leads to a, a loss of zeal in the things of God. Questions are raised. Should we change our focus? Perhaps we've got it wrong. Perhaps we've got the emphasis on the return of Christ uh, out of balance. Should we change focus? Should we get more involved in society? Should we get more involved in community and leave the coming of the Lord to the Lord himself? And more fundamentally, have we got it completely wrong? Have we misunderstood Bible teaching about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? We want to deal with some of these issues in our time this morning. But before I do, there is something looming in the background about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is something, as it were, a cloud waiting to block out the
1: sun. And that is our own mortality. For
0: every one of the members of our community who have died in faith, for them, in effect, the time of waiting is over. The Lord Jesus Christ is the next waking moment. And when we think, well, how long do we have to wait? Brothers, and sisters, young people, friends, we don't know how long we have to wait for us personally before that end comes. Remember the parable of the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 12 of the, the rich man who built his barns and thought he would have a long and comfortable retirement. And in the parable of the Lord says, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. So that's always there, isn't it? And it's always been there. We do not know. We cannot put reliance upon medicine or vaccinations or whatever. I mean, I've had one in each arm this morning. Hopefully, uh, they'll, they'll have some benefit. But, Francis, just saying, people, friends, we cannot take it for granted, can we? As we will know from family experience and the experience of friends, of the sudden things that can overtake us. So that's always there. And let's never forget that particular point. Part. Well, what I want to do is, is to uh, take you through some of the incidents where the end of an age is described in Scripture and see certain principles which come out when we consider what happened at the end of an age. It's the end of an epoch. So the Bible describes for us different eras, different historical periods that come to an end with the judgment of the Lord. And you recognize uh, the days of Noah. The days of Lot, the, the Canaanites that were displaced by the entry of the children of Israel under Joshua into the land of promise. The Babylonian invasion of Judah and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 586 BC. And you just read about it in Luke chapter 21, the end of the commonwealth of, of Judah in the time of the first century, when the Romans came, uh, besieged Jerusalem and destroyed it, and destroyed the Second Temple. These are end-of-epoch events in Scripture. If you're not familiar with each one, it'd be very exciting to to read uh, and, and learn. And each of them seems to be associated with a delaying of the fulfillment. So let's start with the the days of Noah in Genesis chapter 6. And and just notice some of the basic points here in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 and 6. And remember, the Lord Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, as it was in the days of Lot, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. So what we got in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And so the creator looks at society, the world of the days of Noah, and what he sees is that it's hopeless. There's no progress that can be made. The number of faithful is rapidly dwindling. Only Noah remains faithful to the call of God. What is society like? Well, verse 5 says, every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Society had thrown off all restraint. Human imagination was allowed to develop uh, without end, without control, without constraint. It's something that we'll perhaps think about at the end of this
1: age that we are living in. And
0: then it says, in verse, uh, verse 13, And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So God has made his mind up. The judgment is going to happen. The end has come. Then God says in verse 14, Make thee an ark of gopher wood. When you see the reconstructions of the ark and you take it seriously and say, this is what the Bible does teach. How long did it take to build that ark? It wasn't a matter of days, weeks or months. It was a matter of decades. How long, we're not told, but many infer this is what the 120 years is referring to in verse 3. If that's the case, then I think it probably is. What we've got is a period of 120 years. I'm not going to put too much store on that particular application to our day, but it's an interesting time period of 120 years from God saying, enough is enough. It's going to happen. It will happen. I've decided the end has come. 120 years before the end actually came. During which time Noah and his family had work to do, and you know what that work was because we're told in second Peter chapter two and verse five that God spared not the old world but saved Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness. So Noah had work to do, he was preaching righteousness in the time that remained before the implementation of the final judgment, even though the end had come. And Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7 tells us that it was by faith. By faith, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world. Now what does that mean? He condemned the world. Well, he witnessed the world thereby was responsible. The world would be accountable for its behavior. see, God does not bring judgments upon societies which are ignorant or unaware potentially of what God is doing. There is a witness to
1: what he's doing. And if somebody from the days of Noah were to be resurrected to the judgment seat, would they say, well, we didn't know. We didn't know. How are we supposed to know? And would the Lord not say, well, did you not hear about Noah? Didn't you see what he was doing? Did you just join in the laughter and the scorn and the derision? Of my faithful witness
0: in those days? And that would be the answer, wouldn't it? He condemned the world and became the heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. There were things not seen as yet. Right? The idea of a flood had not been seen or experienced before. But it was faith that could see the invisible and by it saved his house, and at the same time condemned the world. Let's take the next example, the days of Lot. When we go to Genesis chapter 13 and verse 13, and what do we find? In Genesis 13 verse 13, uh, Lot is going to go separate from Abraham, take his, uh, his cattle, uh, separate from the cattle and herdsmen of Abraham, It's getting crowded. They're going to go in different directions, looking for pasture. And Lot is going to go down towards the east, down to the Jordan Valley. And we're told there in verse 11 that Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan. And Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves, the one from the other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan. Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent towards Sodom. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before Yahweh exceedingly. So we already know that before Lot has even got to, that's the way I read that passage, before Lot has even got to Sodom, they were already designated by the word of God as exceedingly sinful. They were going to be destroyed. How long later? Oh, well, we're not told exactly, but looking at the chronology of these chapters of Genesis and the age of Abraham when certain key events happened, it looks to me as if 25 years later, Sodom was destroyed. Not 120 years, but 25 years or so later. It's not, not definite, but that's an estimate. During which time, what happened? Well, we know that Lot
1: vexed his righteous soul in Sodom. So there was a witness.
0: We know that God intervened to save Sodom. Remember, the kings came from Mesopotamia. They conquered, they, they defeated the five kings of the area, and they captured Sodom, the king of Sodom, and all his goods and all his people, and they took them off as captives. And it was Abraham who, understanding that his nephew had been taken captive, gets the men of his household and and in chapter 14 of Genesis, achieves a a miraculous victory over the kings of the Middle East. Brings back the people of Sodom.
1: What a witness.
0: During this period, these exceedingly wicked people have been spared. Their lives have been prolonged. And there's Lot in the midst of them vexing his righteous
1: soul against their wickedness. And it's only after that Let the judgment come, and even then, Lot's wife,
0: so foolishly, hankers after the society of Sodom, rather than becoming a stranger and pilgrim, as she should have been with Lot and then with Abraham. Let's go to Genesis chapter 15 and verse 16 and look at that iniquity of the Amorites, that... Is mentioned there. So in Genesis chapter fifteen, Abram is told that you know the kingdom's not going to come for at least four hundred years, isn't he? <laughs> he's told that he's going to uh, he's going to die uh, in he's going to uh, go into a deep sleep, and then he's told, verse thirteen, he says unto Abram, know for surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in the land that is not theirs, and shall serve them. And they shall afflict them 400 years. So that's an awful long time for Abram to think, well, I'm going I'm to die. I'm going to sleep in the die. I believe in resurrection. I believe the dead will be raised. That's why I was willing to offer up my son when the Lord asked me to offer up my son. David would say, I believe that. But it's not going to happen straight away. There's at least
1: 400 years. And
0: also that nation whom they shall serve the like thy judge. And afterward shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go into thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall come hither again. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Notice God looked at Canaanite society. the, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, of course, were part of that society, maybe already had reached that end point. But 400 years later, that society would fill up the measure. You think, well, that's a long time. And of course, what it's saying is that as generations go by, the inheritance of a mindset, the inheritance, a legacy of the previous generation lives on. And each generation has an opportunity to assess, turn away, or go forward with it. And the Canaanites had decided they would go forward, making it more and more evil in the sight of God. Now, you think the society we live in is unrecognizable, isn't it, from a society of 175 years ago in 1848, when uh, brother Thomas wrote Elpis Israel, unrecognizable, it's unrecognizable from 75 years ago. Each generation has an opportunity to say that was terrible, let's let's change course, but it's not happening, is it? And now, the practices of Sodom and Gomorrah
1: and the, of the Canaanites is what. Mass media focuses on. But even then, 400 years later,
0: I mean, it's like, you know, saying, do you remember when the Ottomans uh, came to power 400 years ago? Do you remember the Protestant Reformation? No, I don't remember it. I wasn't there. (laughs) It's a long time. But 400 years later,
1: there was a harlot in Jericho who thought Yahweh, he is the God of heaven above and of earth beneath. Will he save me? When you enter the land, will you save me? And the grace of God says, yes, I will. And that woman became great-great-grandmother Of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go to the time of. Babylon's destruction of Jerusalem in 586.
0: Well we know. That that destruction. Was the result of the sins. Of one king. Of Judah called Manasseh. Hezekiah's son. Manasseh the king of Judah, who filled Jerusalem with blood. Manasseh, the dreadful king, son of Hezekiah. And we're told in 2 Kings 23, 26, 2 Kings 24, 3, Jeremiah 15, verse 4, that the destruction of Jerusalem was certain because of the sins of Manasseh. But if you take the middle of his reign and you say, well, how long after his death? Did Jerusalem get destroyed? It was about 77 years. Judgment was fixed, but the period of implementation waited. And the amazing thing is that Manasseh himself was converted. Manasseh himself repented of his sins,
1: which would bring the downfall of a nation. What
0: an amazing thing that is. During that 77 years, Josiah's Reformation tried to bring the whole people with him back to the true God, but he he failed, apart from a few, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, Mordecai, and a few others. So it was only a few ever who were sensible enough and who had the faith to turn to God. And if we go to Ezekiel chapter 12, you see there the spirit of the age, the spirit which says, well, I think we got it all wrong. I think we should rethink the whole business. I think we can't go with the old interpretations. Scripture, well, I'm not that keen to look at Scripture anymore. I I, I think it's out of date. Um, Let's try a different approach. Well, let's have a look what they said in Ezekiel's day. Ezekiel chapter
1: 12, verse 21.
0: And the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Son of man, what is that proverb that he have in the land of Israel, saying, The days are prolonged, and every vision faileth? Tell them, therefore, Thus saith the Lord God, I will make this proverb to cease, and they shall no more use it as a proverb in Israel. But say unto them, The days are at hand, and the effect of every vision. For there shall be no more any vain vision, nor flattering divination within the house of Israel. For I am the Lord, I will speak, and the word that I shall speak shall come to pass. It shall be no more prolonged. For in your days, O rebellious house, will I say the word, and will perform it, saith the Lord God. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, behold, they of the house of Israel say, the vision that he seeth is for many days to come. And he prophesied of the times that are far off. Therefore, saying to them, thus saith the Lord God, there shall none of my words be prolonged anymore, but the word that I have spoken shall be done, saith the Lord God. Now, what this is telling us is that there is the possibility of a mindset when we get to the end of an age. Now, the end of the age was only a matter of months away. You'd think about it in months, not years. And you had prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel speaking the word of the Lord whose prophecies were coming through before their eyes. And the point being,
1: even if we did know the date, would it make any difference? You see, there was a, there was a
0: proverb going round. Prophecies, they're either for such a long way off or well, they don't come true. Right. We can't trust them. You know, it's it, they're in the they're in the mind of the uh, the imagination of the reader. They're not objective, they're not they're not about the real world. And then verse 24 is telling us, and actually there were other prophecies, false prophecies. And we know what happens in the days of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, what those false prophecies were. They were saying, don't worry, you're fine as you are. God will accept you. Just come as you are, stay as you are, that's fine. It's not, you know, oh, Jeremiah is telling you you've got a, a, a fatal disease of spiritual sickness. Don't listen to him. Put him in the pit, shut him up. All right? I've got a lovely placebo here for you, spiritual placebo, make you feel great,
1: take you out of it.
0: You know, you rise above it, don't worry. And of course, they were overthrown. They were overthrown with a terrible destruction when the Babylonians did come, despite God's warnings, despite the fact that Jeremiah says to Zedekiah, just go out. You will keep you safe in Babylon. Yeah, you'll be a prisoner,
1: but you won't have this terrible destruction.
0: Can't. Peer pressure. It's too much. I, I, I don't want to look silly in front of my mates. And his end was dreadful. Eighty seventy. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ himself spoke about the destruction that was coming on Jerusalem. And just as in other
1: eras the Lord refers to a period of filling up the iniquity of the city. He says
0: to them in Matthew chapter twenty three and verse thirty six He says, Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stole a stem which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, and he would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Christ said to you, he shall not see me henceforth till he see. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Pury up then the measure of your fathers. The Lord Jesus, how often did the Lord reach out to them? But the problem was that end didn't come. They crucified Messiah just as it said they would in Daniel chapter nine. And then Daniel
1: chapter nine says, and then destruction's going to come, but it didn't come. It didn't come. They crucified the Messiah. For three and a half years, the gospel was preached, confirming the covenant to Jerusalem.
0: And the judgment didn't come. Ten years later, it still hadn't come. Twenty years later, it still hadn't come. Thirty years later, it still hadn't come. That generation was dying out. And that's where Second Peter comes in to help us understand the mindset of the people at that time.
1: Second Peter chapter 3.
0: And this is what Peter tells us, look, in verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. People were saying, if you look at the chapter, Second Peter chapter 3, they are saying, verse 3, Peter says, knowing this first, that there should come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. No, this is not going to happen. It hasn't happened in the past, and it's not going to happen now. But then verse 8 says, but beloved, be not ignorant of this. That one day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. To God, time doesn't mean what it means to us. What we think as an eternity of waiting is not an eternity at all. It's just a matter of days, months, and a few years. The Lord is not slack his promise. Well, why
1: the delay? What are we waiting for? But there's
0: long-suffering to us, Lord, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In other words, the Lord is waiting for you, and me,
1: for young people, for the aged, extending our time till there's no hope, keeping going so that there might just be a remedy. But when that was not
0: possible, the judgment came. And so the point is, if this is all we can gather from this sort of talk
1: this morning. Here's the point. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought we to be?
0: See, that's the point. You know, we can we can theorize and we can speculate and we can be erudite in current affairs. We can be knowledgeable of scripture an expert in the history of our
1: community. But what it comes down to is this. What sort of people ought we to be? That's why the Lord is waiting for us, brothers and sisters, young people. That's what he's waiting for. For us to come to a realization of what sort of people we ought to be. So
0: summarizing from those events that we've looked at, I I suggest there are four, shall we say, four principles. First of all, God is deferring judgment because his long suffering is waiting. Whether it's Noah's family, whether it's Lot's children, whether it is Rahab, is deferring that judgment so that we might be saved. But it requires faith, especially when you're in a minority, especially when a small, ridiculed minority. That is the test of faith in that epoch of waiting. But during that epoch, God will witness to the world before he brings that judgment upon that world. And he is, in fact, allowing time for that iniquity to come to the full, for the world to be accountable in the full sense For the way it is taken,
1: the creation of God. The first two
0: are to do with the household of faith. The second two are to do with the world at large. So I'm going to ask the question now then, have we got it wrong? Let's go and look at that in detail. Was Jesus never going to come, but always about to come? Uh, You know, are are we misunderstood? Is our focus in Israel wrong? Are are we being uh, prejudiced and biased towards the Jews? But actually, that's not the way. Well, there is a doctrine called supersessionism, which is the main Christian doctrine through the centuries, which says that we have got it wrong. It's not the Jews anymore at all. The church has taken over from the Jews as the covenant people of God. And this was an idea which wasn't taught in the New Testament, although people sometimes quote the Apostle Paul as if he supported that. It was a, 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 a theology which evolved hundreds of years after the preaching of the gospel by the Lord Jesus Christ. You can go to the history. Gibbon describes it famously in the decline fall of the Roman Empire. I've got many quotes you can have to look at how this doctrine evolved. First of all, they took it seriously. They believed the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ was, was going to happen. And then they said, well, it's not actually a literal coming. It's a spiritual coming. And they said, actually, it's the church, which is the kingdom of God on earth. Uh, the Pope is his vicar. That's where we should put our focus. And if I would come to a head, look, in May the 14th, 1948, the day the state of Israel was declared, the Roman Catholic Daily newspaper declared that modern Zionism is not the true heir of biblical Israel but a secular state. Therefore, the Holy Land and its sacred sites belong to Christianity, the true Israel. That's a bold statement of supersessionism. Right? That is a Catholic doctrine. It is the mainstream uh, Catholic uh, view uh, uh, and has been for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, What does the Bible say? Well, in summary, you just got to read it. Just read Romans chapter 11 and uh, many passages we could go to, God has promised Israel that they will have a land called Israel because they're the seed of Abraham, because Abraham is going to be there, because David is going to be king there, because the Lord Jesus Christ is the seed of David, and will sit on David's throne, that the apostles will be there because they'll be ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. That's what the Bible says. And the apostle Paul doesn't contradict that at all. What he says is, yes, Israel are not believing as a nation. They are blind to the gospel. But look at that word, until God has deferred that implementation of prophecy to give us a time as Gentiles. But that time will come to an end. Until the times of the Gentiles become coming, they're going to come to an end. And then all Israel, Jews. And spiritual Israel will be saved. The natural Israel will be the mortal population of the age to come. At the beginning of the kingdom of God, the saints will be the spiritual Israel ruling on behalf with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our faith. So that's what we need to get. We haven't got it wrong. And in fact, it's an amazing thing. But we did get some of it wrong. We did get some of it wrong. You see, Brother Thomas, uh, thought the Lord Jesus was going to come in 1871. Brother Roberts thought the Lord was definitely going to come before the turn of the century. He wrote as much, he wrote a pamphlet in 1895 saying, is Christ very near? Reasons for expecting the day is coming before the end of the 19th century. And the Lord didn't come. Well, Thomas, uh, died just about when he thought the Lord was going to come, so in a sense he did. Brother Roberts died just about the time he thought he was going to come, and so in a sense he did. Right? Coincidence, should we say. But years later, Brother C.C. C. Walker, writing in the Christadelphian in 1922, said, still it would be a bold man who would expect to write failure over all the speculations. And what he said was this, one thing came that was expected and came at the time expected. And that was the Zionist resurrection of Israel. And this is why today is a significant day in, uh, for me to, to understand what's going on. You see, some said, look, Christadelphians, they got it wrong. We can't know. We shouldn't even try to know. There was an article in 1933 in the Christadelphian, the end of the age, when, and this uh, brother wrote, why then should we seek to know the times and seasons of the restoration of Israel's kingdom? It is not for us to know. Why not be content with this and await the Father's good pleasure? Why seek to ascertain times and seasons that are hidden from us, we cannot find them out because they are not for us to know. Now, you may have heard that that sort of view, right? It, we, we shouldn't be thinking about it even. It's not for us to know. And of course, the Lord did say, no man knows the day and the hour. C.C. C. Walker wrote a reply to that, and he said, you've got some, uh, some caution there which we should listen to. There is room for a word of caution, he says. But then he says, let us not make the mistake of neglecting chronological indications as to where we stand in the weary waiting for the kingdom of God. Right? And he then, he, what he does, he says, look, what led Brother Thomas and Brother Roberts to believe that the Lord was going to come was the fulfillment of a period of time, the 126 years of papal supremacy. If it's the first time you're hearing about this, you'll have to do a little bit of homework. I certainly can't go into it now. But there is a time period in the Bible uh, on a day for a year principle, which is a good scriptural principle, refers to the power of the papacy to downtread, to oppress. And Bible students understood this, not just Christadelphians, other Bible students who wrote about it, they understood. And they thought, well, The papacy came to its power in about six hundred, right? About then, one thousand two hundred sixty years on, that's going to be eighteen sixty-eight. They quite precise when they looked at it. Brother Thomas believed that that would see the end of this Catholic ability to torture. and then the Lord would come, but the Lord didn't come. But the time period's gone. There was another time period of 120 years. And, and Brother Thomas, Brother Roberts thought, well, they'll start in the same place. So go on 30 years. They'll take us to the end of the century. Surely the Lord will have come by then. But what Brother C.C. C. Walker says, no, he didn't come. But what did happen is of huge significance. Now, when Brother Thomas was writing about the... Uh, The Fulfillment of of Bible Prophecy, he said the time Will soon come, he says, when There will be Jews in the land And prosperity and Peace There weren't any Jews in the land not to Speak of, really But he said they're going to Return, they're going to return in unbelief, they're going to Return as agriculturalists, they're going to Return, he hadn't seen It, Brother Thomas Didn't see it, Brother Robert saw the Beginnings of it but then Zionism, as it were, exploded off the blocks at the end of the 19th century. At the time, period seemed to signal not the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but the beginning of an era which would see the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Brother C.C. Uh, Brother C. Walker is basically saying to Brother Rush, who says you can't know, he says, why have we been given the book of Revelation, do you think that? So we can't know? What's it doing in the Bible? Throw it away. What's the point? Yeah, why have we been given Daniel chapter twelve? What's the point? Why have we been given Daniel chapter seven? What's the point? Right? He you said you've got to face up to the fact we have been given these things. Yeah, but if you say the book of Revelation can't be understood by anybody, what a challenge to the mind of the Lord! Why did He give it to us to bamboozle us, to distract us? It's 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 not a tenable argument, is it? But the truth has been, sisters, Bible students did understand the book of Revelation as it was unfolding and anticipated the next stage. For example, Joseph Mead, writing in 1640, famously predicted the demise of the the, the Turkish Empire as the river Euphrates that would dry up and other writers as well. Amazingly, Peter Jourier, French Huguenot writer, predicted the French Revolution. Years before it actually happened. See, so how could he do that? Because he was looking at time periods in the book of Revelation, understood that the 10th part of the city, city that would fall was one of the 10 kingdoms. Realized that France was the epicenter of all that was going on in Revelation at that time. Says it's going to come to an end. And amazingly, he was correct. So it's not true to say uh, we can't know. Times and seasons. because the Lord didn't come in seventeen eighty-five, but that's the point. Is times and seasons are different from uh, hours and days. So let me take you to. We're getting into deep, deep stuff here, but uh, we'll come back to uh, to uh, easier stuff in a moment. But let me just those who are familiar with the seventy weeks prophecy of Daniel. Daniel tells us that there's going to be a period of 490 years from the command to rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of Messiah the Prince and the destruction of Jerusalem. It's going to be a period of 490 years. It's an amazing prophecy to look at. It is incredibly precise. You take the seventh year of Artaxerxes, you go on to the 39 and a half weeks because Messiah is cut off in the middle of the last week. You come to AD 30 for the date of the crucifixion. You go to Wikipedia and ask, what's the best date for the crucifixion that scholars, you come to AD 30. It is an amazing prophecy. Written way before, hundreds of years before
1: it happened. You couldn't fix that. That's what happens. Now, Daniel chapter 9
0: says this. That once Messiah is cut off, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate. In other words, the destruction of Jerusalem was going to happen. Does it say the next day is going to happen? And you see, this was the problem for the people that 2 Peter is referring to. It didn't happen straight away. But it doesn't say it would happen straight away. It was just the expectation. It was the, uh, the zeal, shall we say, of wanting these things to hurry along. So the brethren, 175 years ago and, and since, have been poring over these dates. Could we know what era we're in? There are all these periods of time which have been written about. Are they there just uh, to intrigue us but not to be useful? Or are they in some way helpful in understanding the era in which we live? Well, let's look at them. But there's a period of time in in chapter four of Daniel, the seven times that will pass over uh, the kingdom of men, which works out to 2,520 days. Uh, On a day for a year principle, it's 2,520 years. And where would you start it? Well, this is my best guess. Why don't we start with the vision of Daniel chapter 2? Why don't we start with Nebuchadnezzar? You are this image of gold. You're the head of gold. You are the kingdom of men. 2,520 years are going to go by. When we do that, we come to the year 1917. Right? Did anything significant happen? The Lord didn't come in 1917. But what did happen was the most amazing thing. The Balfour Declaration a Jewish homeland, and the capture
1: of Jerusalem by the British, leading
0: ultimately the possibility of Jewish migration into the land. It was the end of an era, the beginning of an era. My suggestion is the time of the end began then. Right.
1: In chapter 8 of
0: Daniel, there is a prophecy of 2,300 days, 2,300 years. That would go by. Now, we're not told exactly you know, what's going to happen at the end, and we're not actually told when it starts. We just say Daniel wants to know how long, and it's going to be that period of time, between what and what. Well, you're not going to know exactly, because the day and the hour is not going to be told us. So be parsimonious, let's make the fewest assumptions. Let's start with when this vision came to pass. The Greeks and the Persians hit each other head-on at the Battle of Granicus in 334. What happens 2,300 years on from that?
1: 1967. Anything significant happened in 1967?
0: Jerusalem will be trodden down of the Gentiles until 1967. Coincidence. So two remarkable coincidences. Two time periods of great importance in the book of Daniel coming to an end in 1917. Balfour Declaration, Jerusalem in the hands now of Western power. 1967, Jerusalem in the hands of the Jews. Amazing. But the brethren looked at these other time periods, you know, and there's a big debate, Robert Roberts had a big debate with, with others, going over a period of two or three years. Well, at some point, now these dates are related to Muslim times, not Catholic times. And the thing is, of course, that the Muslims came to power at the time the Catholics came to power, right? They're contemporary, Right? Uh, the hegira was uh, 622, wasn't it? Six, six two two, wasn't it? Six two two, and and that's when the papacy became, uh, building on the uh, decree of focus, became the supreme power. And this is what the sort of thing they were looking at. But let's take the the, the dates of uh, the Catholic dates. When did the papacy become supreme? When did it develop this temporal power? Well, the decree of Justinian was a good start, and then Focus confirmed it. The Emperor Focus in 606 to so 610, he confirmed that the Bishop of Rome would be the supreme bishop over all Christianity, and they would have power over you know, at least parts of Italy. You go on one, two, six, oh, years, you come to the end of papal power. That's what Brother Thomas is looking at in 1848. Right. I said 20 odd years before it happened, this, but that's when it's going to happen. And what happens is it happened. Right? But the law didn't come.
1: The law didn't come. Right? And
0: it was an idea that was, was prominent, not just amongst Christadelphians. Well, take the papal dates. Now take the Muslim dates. What happens if we go on 1260 or 1290 years on from the beginning of Islam's rise to power? Well, where would you start? Again, I don't know. Uh, let's just start. Let's take when Omar takes Jerusalem. That seems to be quite significant. When, when the Muslim power takes Jerusalem. What do we come to? Well, we get two dates. 1897 which is the first Zionist Congress, this is when uh, you know, world Jewry awoke to the return to the land, and 1917. Very amazing thing, those two dates. I just take them from, you know, when Omar takes Jerusalem, say, well, 637 is usually the most common date given, so I'm not making these dates up, I'm just going to uh, Oxford Atlas or wikipedia and saying when shall i start well you want a good significant date it'll take you to 1917 and 1897. what about the 120, 1290? i don't know what it means well you can try it every way but if you take it from the time uh, when uh, muhammad himself was prophesying what you come to you come to the future of palestine and Strangest of all, the third date, 1335, which no one seems to know what it's about, was the date when Jerusalem fell to the British. Was the date the year of the Balfour Declaration. That year in 1917, which you get to by these different routes, when the king of the south pushed the king of the north out of the Middle East, happens just to be 1335 well I, I know it's mind-blowing isn't it so what are you going to make of that Well, I would make of this is there's not a time period in the Bible that is yet to be fulfilled there's not one that doesn't have a wonderful endpoint in terms of the significance of God's dealings with Israel that's what I would make of it So I'm not waiting for the next time period to come to pass as Brother Thomas was, you know, he was saying that the, the 18, that the 1260, that's going to be in 20 odd years time. And then I'm hoping that the 1290 will see the kingdom and the 1335, was actually takes you to 1945 and, you know, the Holocaust and all that terrible, uh, force that pushed the Jews back to the land. Uh, certainly the Lord had come by then. And of course, everybody who's got any sense would want that to be true, for the Lord to come sooner rather than later. So when we look back, we don't scorn our brethren. We don't say, well, they got it wrong. We say they got it wrong for the best of intentions and for the best spirit. They got it wrong because they wanted the Lord Jesus to come now. And they couldn't see it going on and on. They couldn't see us. Being here, having an opportunity for salvation. They couldn't see any of you here who were not baptized. They couldn't see you. They, d- they didn't know about us. They didn't know the Lord was wanting to wait for us to get into the kingdom. So here's a young brother writing uh, in Edinburgh. He's reading, a, he's reading a paper to the Christadelphian Mutual Improvement Class in Edinburgh in 1879. And he's doing the study of Ezekiel chapter 38, and he's reading it exactly the same way. And he says, "How, how close is Christ?" I, I think he's close. I think he's close. You see, he says these are important questions. He says, "Is there a king of the north somewhere?" Is there? Is there a Gogian power who could invade? Um, yeah. Are the are the Jews back in the land? Uh, is there a merchant power? That is involved as Ezekiel thirty-eight. But if we can say yes, we know the Lord is near. Bless him. This is what you have to say. Huh? We find that Russia has come south, so Russia's expanding. It's Turk. It's it's, its rich around the Black Sea, huh? the Black Sea, and then he says, "What about the Jews in the land? Are there Jews in the land? Well, oh, no, not yet, not yet, but." Uh, there are some actually, there are some, and others who wanted to go, he was desperately wanting to speed up, Zionism hadn't happened yet, look, this is 1879, he's he's, he's grasping at straws, you might think, but it became, I can't say a flood of straws, but you know, in a few years' time, it was going to be that, and then he says, well, what about this merchant power? of Tarshish. Is there one? Not yet. Not yet, but there soon will be. You see, the anticipation that eagerness, this young brother wanted the Lord to come so much. He was reading the newspapers and thinking, I think it's going to happen any moment. Now, would you criticize that or would you say, what a wonderful spirit? What a wonderful spirit. Do you criticize brother and sisters who look at the newspaper and say, look, I think that's a sign of the times." say, ah, oh, no.
1: Why, why are they so keen? Because they want the Lord to come. Because this is our hope. This is our salvation. See so what the brethren of that age didn't
0: realize that the river Euphrates hadn't dried up. And Brother Thomas thought that some defeats that the Turkish had in 1820 were sufficient to save the start to dry up. But look at the dates when Turkey did actually dry up. Algeria went in Brother Thomas' day. Tunisia didn't go until after Brother Thomas has fallen asleep. Libya, till after Brother Roberts has fallen asleep, and so on. It's really 1917, which is the watershed moment to say that the Turkish Empire started to dry up. So, So, where are we? Where are we? Let's just
1: take stock. It is possible to know
0: the times and seasons. The historical view of revelation has been vindicated. And those time periods have got striking endpoints. The river Euphrates has dried up. Nigel will say not completely because, you know, he's written a very interesting article on that. Uh, uh, But, you know, the Turkish Empire has really been pushed out of that Middle East, allowing opportunity for new kingdoms to emerge in the Middle East, particularly Israel. The Jews have returned in unbelief, as we thought they would. The West Bank, the mountains of Israel, Ezekiel 38 says, are being colonized. Jerusalem, as Zechariah 12 says, is a burdensome stone. In Brother Thomas's day, Jerusalem was was a backwater Nobody took much interest in it. It was a, it was a malaria swamp. It was a typhoid sewer. It was a dreadful place to visit. Look at it now. Jerusalem, the burdensome stone. There is now a spoil in the Middle East worth having beyond Jaffa oranges, right? There is a spoil. The coasts of Palestine and Lebanon are pricking buyers. Hezbollah and Hamas. And Russia is on the border, now, not of the Turkish Empire, but Russia is on Israel's border. Russia is in Syria. Russia is watching Israel from next door. Is it on course? Of course it's on course. What's left to happen? Well, what's left to happen is this, my sisters. The judgment seat of Christ is left to happen. Everything else can take place after that. Everything else that needs to happen can take place after the Lord Jesus Christ returns. We've been called to, to judgment. This, this you know, it could take a long time. They could happen very quickly.
1: That's what's left. So, why the delay?
0: Well, I just want to spend a few minutes, five minutes, if I've got that time, just to, to suggest to you what is happening. What is God doing? He's witnessing to the world, not in a little corner of the British Empire through you know, the Christadelphian community, is witnessing to the world on a global scale because his purpose is to gather the nations, to assemble the kingdoms and pour on them his judgments.
1: But he's gonna hold them accountable.
0: For those judgments. So the word is witness. How is God witnessing to the world? Well, God says to the Jews, you are my witnesses. You will be my witnesses to the nations. Half of the Jewish population is in Israel. Half is outside. Exactly the sort of thing that we might have expected from Bible prophecy. Jews in the land, Jews out of the land. It's now about 50-50. I don't put much on the 50-50, but it's an interesting uh, period of time. Let me show you this. If you go to Isaiah chapter 45, you'll see there, uh, you'll see there the amazing statement about how the world is going to be held accountable. How the nations are gathered together and they're going to be held accountable for the judgments that God will bring upon them. And Isaiah 45, this is what it says. Verse 18, for thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it. He hath established it, he created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I have not spoken in secret. God has spoken globally through
1: Israel. Verse 20, assemble yourselves, come, draw near. And so God sets out certain principles, and this is what they are. First of all, he is the creator, right?
0: He has put this environmental world together. He has not spoken and speak it. He's spoken it ahead of time. He's going to assemble all nations. They're going to say, you didn't say it. And archaeologists say, oh, yes, he did. They're going to say, it's not fair. He says, what do you mean by justice? The world is racked with this question. Is it, what is justice? What is righteous? And it's going to be global. Let me very quickly. Sorry, I'm going to erase through. But first of all, creation. Evolution was just being well, sort of developed when Brother Thomas was publishing Elpis Israel. The world now has thought that it's evolved.
1: Time has gone on. And now science is saying, actually,
0: it's too complicated. Darwinism doesn't cut it. We can't explain it. I believe God has allowed time to go on for us to begin to see the need for the great designer of all things. And when Ezekiel, chap- when Zechariah chapter 12 is introduced, it's God who made the heavens and the earth, the creator who is going to do these things. The world will realize there is a creator. Darwinism is bankrupt. And you know the most poignant evidence of that was
1: Hitler? Hitler was deeply influenced by Darwin. And it allowed him scientific legitimacy, so he thought.
0: A morally bankrupt concept led to the persecution of death of 6 million Jews. Does anybody in the world not know about the Holocaust? Holocaust days are commemorated across the world. It is the most amazing, awful witness, but witness it is. The history of the Jews shapes world history. Now, that's not coincidence.
1: It is so prominent in politics throughout the world. I'll tell you why. I I was struck by this.
0: This is uh, an article about Hitler and some of the speeches that he gave. And you know why he wanted to get rid of the Jews? I think this was deep in his psychology. What is it about the Jews that is so offensive to people? What is it? Why do people hate them? Why is this the original hatred? Why? And this is what he says. I am freeing men from conscience and morality.
1: Isn't that interesting? He blames the Jews
0: for conscience. Why? Because it's through the word of God that these things have come to hold us accountable. And he says, There is no such thing as truth, either in the moral or in the scientific sense. Now, Hitler was postmodern, okay? Isn't that amazing, though? Why do people hate the Jews? Because the word of God was given to them to share across the world. And it is that that the world will be held accountable for. God has spoken and men said, no, no, no. There is no creator. He has no purpose. There will be no kingdom. And the Jews, if there is going to be a kingdom, the Jews are going to have nothing to do with it. God will hold the world accountable. And so the Bible has been the witness. Look, we know about the Balfour Declaration. Amazing, right? This is Balfour's, uh, not Balfour, this is Beitzman's house in in Tel Aviv where Ben used to work in the the institute there. And this this is his living room. And on that living room is a picture of a Welshman. I thought I'd put that up, right? I'd put a Welshman. Not a, not a very, not an upstanding man, actually, but a Welshman of this. And this is what Weizmann says of the Welsh. Welsh children learned long chapters of the Bible by heart and usually knew the geography of Israel better than they knew their own. Right? If only that were true now. Teachers, you know, get on the case. This is what, um, Alderman says in Jewish court, the Balfour Declaration was born out of religious sentiment. Arthur Balfour was a Christian mystic who believed that the Almighty had chosen him to be an instrument of the divine will. Isn't that amazing? The history of our modern world is shaped by God's own word in the minds of people who understood that that's what it was for, for them to take forward. What an amazing hand of God. And this is what Lord George said. He said, it was undoubtedly inspired by natural sympathy, admiration, and also by the fact that you must remember, we had been trained even more in Hebrew history than in the history of our own country. I was brought up at a school where I was taught far more about the history of the Jews than about my own land. Five days a week in the day school and in on Sundays, we were thoroughly versed in the history of the Hebrews. So it is true that Christian Zionism brought about a Balfour Declaration. Now, some say that's, you know, you're fulfilling it. It's self-fulfilled prophecy. Wow! if you think people could just do that on their own because they believed it was a good idea, uh, you, you got some thinking to do. So let me just take you to a few concepts now. All nations will be gathered together. Well, we're familiar, aren't we, with the drama of the United Nations. In 2000, with Ehud Barak, uh, quoting scripture to the assembled nations of the world. Brother Thomas would not have imagined that that could be possible.
1: He quotes Micah. He quotes Jeremiah.
0: He quotes the same passages we quote the Prime Minister of Israel speaking to all the world. And God says, I'm gonna hold you accountable because I've made them my witnesses. We've seen in twenty twelve Prime Minister of Israel warning against Iran.
1: Ezekiel thirty eight in this past few weeks.
0: Look, he's holding a map of the King of the South territory. He's holding up a map of Sheba and Dedan. And the merchants of Tarshish. That's what is holding up to the world. The world will be without excuse when these things happen. They hate Israel. There's a special rapporteur in the United Nations for truth and justice. Truth and justice.
1: And archaeology has shown us
0: that this is historically true. So I'm going to skip on you, and I'm just going to finish with this now. One of the archaeological finds I think is the most not, not often publicised, but one which is quite amazing. And when we went, when we went to Posada uh, with Brother Lane, Sister Kathleen, uh, and we went to the synagogue, and he showed us where, digging under the floor of the synagogue, they found a scroll. Right, they found a scroll. From 2000 years ago, when the Jews were removed by the Romans from their land. One of the Dead Sea Scrolls, not, not in the, not in Qumran, in Masada. When they looked at the scroll, do you know, the biggest section was Ezekiel
1: 37. Ezekiel 37, the first 14 verses,
0: the vision of the valley
1: of bones was left there for 2,000 years to be discovered for the world to have no excuse. And it has no excuse. Do you know that the Democratic Republic of Congo is going to open its embassy in Jerusalem? Like Papua New Guinea did. I mention that because... Brother Thomas didn't know these countries even existed on the planet.
0: All nations now have been brought into the ambit of the purpose of God. Friends, sisters, young people, what
1: sort of people ought we to be?